Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking this morning at the first 12 verses of of the gospel according to Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Let's give our attention once again to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the disciples, uh, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Most gracious fathers, we look at this passage that is challenging in many ways in our culture as it was in the days of Christ. We ask that you would guide us. Guide us in our thinking, guide us in our hearing. Father, by your spirit, guide me in my speaking. Give me words in my mouth that I may proclaim boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. That even as we are challenged, we might be comforted here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as many of you know, today is Palm Sunday, the day of the the triumphal entry into the the, the Holy Week leading up to uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And what we see on Palm Sunday as we read the the stories in the Gospels is that there was this grand recognition of Christ as king. That as people came in, or as Jesus came in, people were laying down the palm branches and and, and crying out, Hosanna, glory to God, and, and recognizing that Jesus was the king. And of course, there's the the irony that that he didn't quite meet what they were wanting. He showed up on this donkey, this this animal traditionally associated with peace rather than on a horse to to bring war and and, and clear everything out and reestablish everything like it was supposed to be. But there was this overwhelming recognition that he was, in fact, king. But as we know, and as we'll celebrate over the coming week and think about over the coming week, that declaration of, of Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, praise to the king, like that declaration didn't last real long. For it seems, looking at the stories in, in the gospel narratives, that, that those crowds that had gathered to, to proclaim that he was king and to lay down the palm branches and, and welcome him into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry, it seems very likely that many of those later cried out, crucify crucify him as they were stirred up by those who wanted to see Jesus dead. There's this grand irony there, and it's a good segue into what we're going to be looking at this morning. 
Because this is really a continued lesson about discipleship. About our willingness to recognize who God is, who Christ is, how he has designed all of creation to work, and so to submit to it. Oftentimes we find ourselves quite ready and willing to do this, quite ready and willing to cry out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, all of those things. We we find ourselves quite ready and willing to, to recognize, yes, Christ is King. He is Lord. But then quite often also we find some situation that that says, well, maybe not on this particular matter. Maybe I don't like how he is Lord here on this issue. And it seems as we look at this passage that, that marriage is one of those issues. We often have heard people decry the the divorce rate, both within and without the church, and all of this as as some harbinger of some grand tragedy that looms on the horizon of culture and our nation and our society. But the reality is, the reality is, we've struggled with this all along. Our, Our... no-fault divorces and, and, and our struggles with, with marriage and, and all of this, they're not 21st century issues. Our desire to, to find ways to, to, to more easily get out from under a marriage that, that we're not happy in, that's not a 21st century invention at all. And in fact, that's part of what's behind the question that is being asked here. This this passage shows the the kind of normal pattern of Jesus' ministry. He he shows up somewhere, people gather, and they're teaching, or or he's teaching them. And then some Pharisees show up, this this group uh, from the ruling class there, the, the religious ruling class in Jerusalem, show up and start asking questions in order to test him. They want to challenge, they've they've heard something they don't like or or something has happened and then they're looking for a way. Perhaps they heard something that they said, oh, that's the way in. Maybe it wasn't that they didn't like it at all. They just thought, here's where we can get them. Here's where we can catch them. Here's where we can get them to slip up. I think it's likely that, that that is what is going on here. We don't know the content of the teaching that Jesus gave in this particular moment, but but something about it provoked these Pharisees to test him and ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I think part of what might have been behind this question was what had somewhat recently happened with John the Baptist as he challenged Herod and Herodias in their marriage that ended in him being killed because of the challenge. I think part of what might be going on here is is the the Pharisees heard something in what Jesus said that sounded very much like what John the Baptist had said and said this might be the way to do it. This teaching got John killed. Maybe... If we can get him saying this loud enough and it can get back to Herod, we can dispense with him in a similar way and keep our hands clean. 
We, we of course, don't know for sure, but I, but I think given, given the context, I think that is a, a fair motive to see going on here because we know it was the Pharisees' goal to kill Jesus. That, that they, they state that clearly. They want to get rid of him. But Jesus, being who he was, being wisdom incarnate, doesn't bite on the question they want him to answer exactly. See, in, in, in Jewish law, you can read that, that, that they were quite willing to grant divorce for any number of things. When, when you read the Mishnah, the, 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 the Jewish teaching on the Torah, you can see that, that if your wife burnt dinner, that was enough. Find the right rabbi, and for that displeasure, you could have her removed from the marriage and be free to remarry. Now, there, there were a number of interpretations of, of Deuteronomy 24, which is undoubtedly what the Pharisees had in mind. But the point I want us to see here is that this idea of being able to easily get out from under marriage, being able to easily get out of that for, for whatever reason that we grew apart or that whatever reasons we come up with, that's not 21st century thinking. That's the thinking of sinful man in every generation that has come. And it was the thinking in their day. And so they thought, it seems as we put the context together, Jesus had said something that went against that. Now's our chance. But again, he doesn't bite, but asks a different question. What did Moses command you? See, Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows that people are trying to catch him. He, he knows that, that there's a struggle that, that, that's afoot and, and that, that they want him gone. And that this is, in fact, a test. And so he asks about their own law. They answer, pointing back to Deuteronomy 24, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. This is a, a particularly kind of patriarchal take on things, and, 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 and the, the take on the passages in the first century were that. And Jesus responds to this statement by giving us an incredibly rich picture of the theology behind marriage. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. That is an incredibly bold statement. Jesus doesn't deny that, that they're reading Deuteronomy 24 and getting something of the sense of it. Yes, that was allowed, but he drives at what's going on. It was because of the hardness of your heart that this was allowed. That's why this concession was made. See, Jesus is, is pushing back on their challenge and, and, and forcing them to recognize that the concessions for sinful life that God has given, even in his law, are no place to start building our theology of whatever area of life we're looking at. 
Jesus essentially says, yes, you're correct. Moses did write that. But have you ever thought about why he wrote that? And have you ever thought about whether or not that's where you want to start with your theology of marriage? The concession for your hard-heartedness is not a good starting point. And so Jesus pushes it back a layer. But before we move into what he pushes to, I want us to think about this idea of hardness of heart because there's an interesting word here that's, that's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. In this passage, in the parallel passage, in uh, Matthew 19 and, and one other spot. And it's only used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, a handful of times as well. And it's always got a kind of particular meaning. We see this meaning best illustrated in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16 where we read, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now, it really starts to come to life when we put those words back in their broader context. In Deuteronomy chapter 9 is where we have the story of the golden calf. You all remember that? Moses is up on the mountain getting the very law of God from God himself and the Israelites are freaking out, wondering like, okay, when's this guy coming back? And so they fashion themselves a golden calf at Aaron's behest and and he says, behold, Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Israel. And they begin to worship this golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain, he throws the tablets down and he has to go back up and new tablets are made. So Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 13 to 29, is the golden calf. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, is when Moses is given the new tablets and they're brought back to Israel with this message. Circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. And in the Septuagint, the the word for hardness of heart here is the word for for foreskin. He says that he's basically saying circumcise the hardness of heart. Get rid of that. That's the problem. Now notice the the, the broader context of of this hardness of heart has to do with their idolatry, with their turning away from Yahweh to worship other gods. We see the exact same thing in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, where Israel is being called to repentance this time specifically for their spiritual adultery, and they're told to circumcise the hardness of their heart. In Ezekiel 3.7, we see the same thing in the context of Israel's unwillingness to listen to God. They're called hard-hearted. This is the context of hard-heartedness every time. All of a sudden, this statement that, that yes... Moses did write that because of your hardness of heart. It's likely, I think, because of the the vocabulary that Jesus seems to be purposely drawing on, that he is saying something that's way more about their relationship to God than their relationship to their spouse. Yes, Moses wrote this. And he wrote this to you because you are hard-hearted toward God. He wrote this to you because you've got this issue that is illustrated in marriage that is a bigger issue that's illustrated and seen again and again in the life of Israel and in the life of you and I. That just like Israel in Jeremiah 4, 
in so many other places, is shown to be the adulterous wife of the faithful husband. So we are so often. And I think the cleverness of Jesus' answer is that he is, in fact, invoking all of that theology behind marriage. Because the next thing that he does is drive back to creation. He drives back to how God had established this to work. Yes, Moses gave this concession, but let's not start there with our understanding of marriage. Let's go back to how God had established it in the beginning. That's what Jesus does. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here he points back to the the richness of the story that Rob read us earlier from Genesis chapter 2, where where God sees that that man needs this helpmate, this, this azer, and he gives him Eve crafted out of his own rib that she might be a strength to him in the work of keeping the garden. Because it wasn't good that he was alone. Jesus is wanting the Pharisees to see that this is where our understanding of marriage needs to begin. Not with the concession that Moses gave us, but with the the pattern that that God gave us at creation. See, really, what what, what Jesus is doing is, is asking them and us, are we willing to have every aspect of our lives, even those areas that call us most directly to take up our cross and follow him, are we willing to have every area of our life brought under the authority and purpose and lordship of the word of God? That's the question. This is what we confess on the first or second Sunday of every month when we go to the Heidelberg Catechism that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That's what Jesus is driving at. That's what Mark is driving at in in recording this passage here as he continues to write about what a true disciple is and what true discipleship looks like. He's reminding us that our job as Christians is not to live by the concessions made for sin in this life, but to live by the strength of the Holy Spirit as he enables us by the standard that God has given us. That's what we're called to. That's what discipleship looks like. Here's the picture of marriage that is given. Man and woman joined together, two becoming one. 
Now, in our culture and in our day, the, the, the question that we often ask, because we hold marriage in, in, in high regard and all of these things, as we rightly should, the question that we often get to and, and, and come to these passages with is, well, okay, but, but what are the situations that get us out of that? What about adultery? What about abuse? What about abandonment? And, and certainly we can put all of these different passages together in, in, in Matthew chapter 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 and, and we can begin to give a statement that accounts for all of those things. But what we must remember, what we must remember is that those are the concessions. Those are the concessions for the reality of life in a sinful world. Those aren't a statement about how it is supposed to be. We often come to this issue with the same question and the same struggle and the same uh, poking and prodding that the Pharisees did. But what if I'm not happy? And Jesus is calling us to come to this matter looking for something more basic. What has God commanded? And as we saw in the series on the family that we looked at just a few months ago in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, what we saw is that what he has called us to is mutual submission to one another, giving up of ourselves. This is why this fits so perfectly in this discipleship discourse, because what he started this with was, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow me. If you're married or have been married, you know that the greatest arena for fulfilling that statement is marriage. If you don't want to deny yourself, take up your cross and, and follow Jesus. If you don't want to do the hard work of denying yourself, those of you who are, who are not married yet, don't get married. Don't do it. I don't care how idyllic it seems at the beginning. You're marrying a sinner. And it will be hard. And you will have to deny yourself. And you will have to take up this instrument of death. And you will have to follow Jesus. That's the reality. That's the reality of marriage. We love to, to write the books that are in pastel colors on the cover and, and, and look dreamy and, and look like something that, that you know, fell out of Cinderella's story about how, here's how great marriage can be and how wonderful it is. Uh, and, and, and there's a few books that have, that have sought to be a little bit more realistic about things. But I have yet to read the marriage book, and I've read a number of them, that just says, look, it's the hardest thing you're ever going to do. It starts, it, it may be fantastic, but you're marrying a sinner. And it's going to hurt. And it's not going to take long for that to be the case. And for that to come to reality. My kids like to tell the story on me that the first thing I did to my wife was lie to her after we got married. Because we had hired someone to, to play the violin as she walked down the aisle in all of her glorious, radiant beauty. And he was atrocious. 
He was a fantastic violin player. And he was someone that was a long family friend of Annie and her family. And he was so nervous that it was horrendous. But Annie, walking in with all the nerves that a bride walks in with, looking at this fool standing at the front, wondering what I've done, was completely unaware. And so as we're walking down the aisle after we've been married and, 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 and kissed, and we get right outside the door, and she's like, how did he do? Talking about the violin player. And I was like, oh, he's fantastic. <laughs> this is why, sorry, Jackie and Josiah, I am not a fan of weddings being videoed. <laughs> because at some point we sat down and watched the video and it starts and she's like, the first thing you did to me was lie. <laughs> this is a comedic statement about the reality that we all marry sinners. And what Jesus is calling us to is not to build our understanding of marriage on the concessions that are given for the hardness of our heart, but to repent and build our understanding of marriage on the design that God gave before the fall. Where man and woman leave mother and father and the two become one. But we don't live before the fall. And so this call to, to understanding of marriage and, and oneness as we saw in Ephesians when, when Paul expounds on this theology of marriage in light of the fall requires submission to Christ. It requires a willingness to repent. It requires a willingness to forgive. It requires death to self at every turn. Every single turn. And that's what we're called to. And it is a high calling. And, 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 and Jesus goes on following the, the normal pattern. He, he's taught. Some Pharisees have come and challenged him. He's given an answer. This time it wasn't in a parable. It often is. And then he finds himself in, this house, in a house with the disciples. And they've got more questions. And, and they ask some questions. Apparently, it, it's recorded more in Matthew 19. And he gives this answer. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And, and he, he doesn't, Mark doesn't for whatever reason, I don't know why, he doesn't record the, the except for in the case of adultery and, and, and things like that. He doesn't record the, the, the concessions that are given in the New Testament. Matthew does, Paul does. For whatever reason, Mark doesn't here. He, he just records the harder part of the statement. In, in Matthew, we read that, that the disciples' response to, to Jesus' hard teaching on marriage was, well, who can do that? It's better not to get married. That was their response. The disciples of Jesus, when they hear this call, they're like, well, let's just not do that then. Because that seems quite difficult. 
And, and what's fascinating in Matthew, I know I'm preaching on Mark, but what's fascinating in Matthew, just as an aside, is Jesus doesn't correct them. He's like, yeah. Some people are eunuchs for, for a whole bunch of reasons. In other words, he's like, yes, some people, they just said, you know what, not worth it. Can't do it. It's too much. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't push back on them, thinking, whew, that seems like a lot. Because he knows us. And he knows that it is. And he knows that there was a need for the concession because we're hard-hearted. But here, Mark just records this particular phrasing of what happens in the case of divorce and remarriage. He doesn't say never get a divorce. He doesn't say anything like that. But he says whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. So he's dealing with this issue of, of remarriage. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He, he's building on what, what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 24, that you can't get married and marry somebody else. And, and in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it's like it, it adds this, this extra layer. If, if you're married and you separate and, and one of you gets married, you can't then get remarried if that marriage doesn't work out. And all of a sudden, when we, when we see this in terms of, of the idolatry uh, that, that this hardness of heart issue comes up with in Deuteronomy 10 and Jeremiah 4 and Ezekiel 3, and then we begin to think about the warning passages in Hebrews chapter 6, where, where someone who has tasted and, and seen and, and experienced the, the wonders of, of the gospel and the church and then walks away, and, and, and the author of Hebrews says there's no sacrifice left for them. All of a sudden, we're beginning to see that reality, even that reality played out in marriage. And we're seeing how rich and how deep this theology of marriage goes in showing forth the reality of the gospel. But it leaves a nagging question for us, doesn't it? What if we find ourselves in this position? What if we find ourselves in a failed marriage or are out of a failed marriage, I guess we should say? What then? And here is where we remember that God knows us. Here is where we remember that God did give these concessions for the reality of our hard-heartedness, for the reality of sin, for the reality of life in a broken world. Here is where we remember that, that this is not the unpardonable sin, but there's grace. There's grace found in Jesus Christ. And there's forgiveness. And there's life in his name. Because this isn't this isn't the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is talked about in other places. And Jesus doesn't say, well, then in that case, you're a stranger once again to the promises. And so we begin to see how tender our God is to us in the gospel. Because it's not just with marriage where things work this way. Every commandment that God has given 
Every commandment that He's given is a statement about how He expects life to work. And when we fail that, just like in marriage, we've sinned. But this is why Christ came. That forgiveness might be granted. That grace might be shown. And so as we read this, we we ought not read it only as something that condemns us. But we ought to find buried in here the reality of these concessions that God has made. And though we don't build our understanding of marriage on the concessions, we recognize the grace of them. And that doesn't give freedom to, to turn from the created way but it does remind us that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there's hope. And there's forgiveness. And there's life everlasting in Him. Even for sinners like you and me. There is a theology to which we are called. And there is a gospel that answers it when we fail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the beautiful picture that marriage is of Christ and his church. We admit, Father, that we often are are quick to build our understanding of marriage on the concessions you have given rather than on the statements from the positive side that you have made. We confess that often it's easier for for us to hold on to our oneness, for for us to hold on to, to our identity rather than to give things up to become one with someone else. We confess, Father, that even though oftentimes because of public shame, we've been unwilling to take such a bold step as divorce that we often live in this way even in our marriage. And this also doesn't reflect your glory as you've set it out in marriage. And so, Father, we come to you and ask for the grace to repent and the grace to change and the grace of rest in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.